Hello, welcome to this University of Brighton podcast, just the second one of 2020. We're well underway now. I'm Richard Newman, and my guest this week is Panayotis Fotaris. Panayotis is a principal lecturer in the School of Computing, Engineering and Maths and leads on two of the undergraduate games courses we have here. His teaching is innovative and unique, think escape rooms and virtual reality. We spoke about how games can aid learning across all courses and schools, got to know about some interesting hobbies, and he started by explaining what he does here at the university. I joined the university about two years ago, and um, I was just teaching the digital media students, but then my role changed and I became the course leader for the games courses. And um, I'm teaching uh, a few modules on, on games and also on, uh, on web technologies. And at the same time, as a course leader, I try to collaborate as more as often as possible with students to come up with ideas and collaborate with other schools as well. Great. Quite a lot to get stuck into. We're going to have a chat about games, about escape rooms, how they can be used in a learning setting, all these kind of things. Um, let's go back to basics a little bit, get to know you a bit first. Mm-hmm. Doing a bit of research, you've had a number of former careers. So how did it all start? How have we got to this this place now right so as you can probably tell by my accent i'm not from the uk i'm greek so i was i started my career in greece i started teaching there second education further education and then at a university at the same time i was uh, trying to do other you know gigs to survive basically so working for film festivals uh, graphic designer web designer uh, and all of those things and then at some point i thought that you know i cannot live here anymore and I think that I thought that probably relocating to the UK would be a good opportunity for me, which is what I did. And I was lucky enough to be uh, able to start a career from scratch in the UK. Mm. So I moved to the UK in Halloween 2012. I worked for King's College uh, in London for a year as a learning technologist because my research background, my PhD is on uh, learning uh, technologies. And then I decided to just instead of creating learning material for lecturers to become a lecturer myself so I can create my own stuff. So I left, I went to, went to the University of West London. I, there, I worked there for a year, so lecturing computing. Went to the University of East London and I was there, the course leader for the digital, uh, digital media course. And two years ago, I came down to Brighton and, and joined your art team here. Mm. So, I mean, looking at your university profile, um, I guess we could concentrate on any number of former jobs. We're going to come to your the meat of what you do in a moment. One of your former jobs says on here, radio producer, so no pressure right. on me here. Got a lot of pressure on me mm-hmm. to get this right. But given your his talk about all things um, gaming, we've got graphic designer, full stack developer, DJ, mashup artist. Can you tell us about what you were doing there? Right. So basically what a mashup is, is you get a you can get an instrumental version of a song. Mm-hmm. You could get a guitar riff. You could get a bass line. You get a, uh, vocals, acapellas. And then you use them to make your own Frankenstein monster so you can make your, uh, your own song. That sounds completely different to uh, the original version of the song. Mm. Of course, you know, some people have said that this is illegal, but, you know, you're not charged people to listen to your music. Sure. So uh, I've been actually contacted by the original artist on a few occasions, but that was because they really liked the, the mashup. So right. they didn't, you know, there was no lawyer after me. Yeah. So this stuff is, it's quite creative because you make something new from old beaten pieces and it's all on SoundCloud for everyone to hear. How can we find that if uh, everyone's curious? You're right. So uh, my uh, DJ nickname is Bynar, B-Y-N-A-R. 
It's actually, that's an alien race in Star Trek because I'm a Trekkie. Okay, we'll get so, to that, I think. Yeah, so it's binar. If you go on soundcloud.com slash binar or mixcloud.com slash binar for my podcasts and radio shows. Great, okay. Was that a hobby that yeah, you yeah, came about a hobby. from a long time? Or? Yeah, and I was working uh, as a radio producer in Greece. Yeah. And I was working as a music journalist as well. You know, it didn't pay much, but, you know, just something extra on the side. Mm. And I really enjoyed that. And I was DJ there as well for 12 years. And that did pay some of those bills. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of uh, interest in music. But because of my studies, I wanted to actually start making some money based on my studies. That's the reason why I thought, okay, yeah, that's fun, but you cannot do this forever. So just go to academia. That's what I did. Yeah, journalism does not pay much. Tell me about it. (laughs) Okay, look, we're here to talk about your expertise um, in games, really, and how they're used in education. Yep. So what sort of thing are we talking? Right, so I'm an advocate of what we call game-based learning because nowadays uh, the attention span is getting lower and lower. Mm. So we have to find other ways to, let's say, to engage students, make them motivated, uh, make them experience what we call in games flow. So one way to do that is just by using games. So gamification, you used to be, you know, big buzzword, game-based learning. This is where my research is actually focused on. And as a matter of fact, there's a, an international conference, the European Conference for, for Game-Based Learning. This year is going to actually take place here at our university. We're going to host that. It's going to be, t- it's going to be the end of uh, September. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be, bring about 200 people from all over the world to come and talk about how to use games for learning. And then also I'm a fan of escape rooms. Now, escape rooms, uh, they became popular, you know, in the last three, four years, I yeah, think. Yeah. And now it's becoming, you know, an increasing market. So there's money to be made there, commercially talking. But we can also use them for training purposes. And that is a kind of a new idea. So research-wise, there haven't been many papers published about that. Although... Nowadays, you know, the last couple of years, people are actually trying to start to try this in academia, in the universities, in academic settings. And this is what we're trying to do here as well. So we even had students making their own educational escape rooms. As a matter of fact, four of our students last year, uh, they made an educational escape room to teach programming in virtual reality. Mm. And that was uh, shortlisted at the uh, a student game competition at this uh, European Conference for Game-Based Learning. So there's lots of different ways that you could go down this route in terms of game-based learning. Uh-huh. Um, treat me like an idiot because I don't know enough mm-hmm. about these kind of things. And, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners may be the same, but some some may not be. When we're talking about virtual reality, this is something that is, um, we're hearing quite a lot about it. Right. And uh, it seems to be, is it quite a rapidly developing technology? How far can it go? Well, uh, the problems of, you know, virtual reality uh, is when you, put on a headset, so everything that you see is just digital. So you cannot see anything uh, outside your headset. And, you know, VR has been with us for ages, but it's always, uh, it never managed to actually catch up. The problem that we've got is that, okay, you put that thing on, which sometimes could be really uncomfortable, but you've got all those cables, so you need a lot of space and all that. You need a very uh, powerful computer to do that. Uh, However, nowadays, things are progressing, technology talking, uh, technology-wise. You've got now the Oculus Quest. Mm. So that's a new headset, VR headset, that doesn't have any wires, doesn't require a connection to a computer. So you just put that thing on, and you're good to go. You experience VR. And we actually have a virtual reality lab in Cockroft, the fourth floor, and where our students actually develop their own VR projects. And uh, you can use virtual reality 
to do things that you wouldn't be able to do in real life for various reasons. For example, you know, if you want to become a pilot, right, and you want to fly, it's really quite expensive to fly on a real plane. Not to mention the fact that what happens if you crash a plane. But with a flight simulator and virtual reality, you experience the whole thing, but it doesn't cost you anything. Mm. So that is one way to use virtual reality for educational purposes. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the the possibilities for VR is, is are endless, really. I mean, it would help people with uh, medical conditions Absolutely. as well. As well. Um, but like you say, from for training, will the will the situation always be that? The technology can keep on advancing, mm-hmm. but will, people will always want it to be more real. True. Yeah, exactly. Is that true? But I mean, I, I don't know how quickly it's developing. I guess that we're getting to a point where it's only be- it's becoming a lot more popular over this last, I don't know, year or two. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is because the technology is starting to to be to make it things that feel a little bit more real. True. It's becoming more mature and it's becoming more uh, accessible, I could say. And also you've got companies like Sony with PlayStation VR and all that. And now we're going to have the next generation consoles coming in. And they're also going to be supporting VR, especially Sony, because they're ahead of the game compared to Microsoft. So I think that this is one way to introduce, to introduce people to VR. So you begin with games, and then you can do the other things, you know, the uh, um, educational uh, uh, VR. And also, you can use this in museums. Or you can use this, you know, for our cultural heritage. Mm. Uh, so now, you walk into a museum and you just see a yep. look, look at a dinosaur bones and a dinosaur just walk around in front of you. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. That's a bad you could example. Do, but if you do that with a tablet, that is augmented reality. Uh, okay, right. Okay. But you have to put yes, just a headset for VR for virtual reality. Yeah. But yeah, you could actually yeah you could do that. Or imagine nowadays with all those walls, right? Mm. You've got some of those monuments that pff, they just stopped to exist because you know they're just bomb. Mm. So just by uh, you could reconstruct them in VR and at least put the headset and experience that or see how it would be like 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah. So if you were to predict where VR will go and how massive it can become, would you say it's going to be a big thing? Is it going to be everywhere? Well, I can't really say that because this is what people kept on saying for the past 20 years and it didn't happen. But I think it's just a matter of... uh, if we get there, te- technologically talking, so if it becomes affordable for everybody, I think that's, yes, that can happen. Mm. But it's all about marketing nowadays. So you have to promote it. You have to have something like a killer app. People know about augmented reality now. Why? Because of Pokemon Go. Mm. So Pokemon Go was a killer app for AR. We still have to find the killer app for, uh, for VR. Although some, uh, somebody might say that um, Beat Saber so Beat Saber is, um, remember back f- almost 10 years ago, a game called Guitar Hero? Mm-hmm. So Guitar Hero was a game you could pretend to be a guitarist. Yep. So get, like, Beat Saber is something like that. You've got lightsabers like the ones that they use in Star Wars. Uh, you have to just hit some objects uh, based on the beat of, 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 of a song. Mm-hmm. And it's good exercise, actually. You can come and see all students play that on our VR lab. So that is what we can call a killer app for VR. Right, okay. So it's like 2020's version of a, a dance here. mat or as yes. well, going back a little bit further. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's quite active. Mm-hmm. I yeah. used that for the first time in a while in an arcade game the other day. Yeah, it's exciting. I was talking about arcade games. We've got an arcade cabinet. Oh, least. really? Yeah. Wow. See, I mean, these are the reasons to come to the University of Brighton, if nothing Absolutely. else, right? <laughs> because <laughs> we've got, in the, the arcade cabinet, we can actually upload our students' games. Right, okay. So you can not only play old games, but you can play the game that you've created mm. or your mates created, which is great, good stuff. Yeah, I guess the... 
I, I guess we, you were kind of you were touching on it just now, but the way that VR becomes popular and explodes is when it becomes accessible to everyone. Absolutely. So if you do not rely on cables or really high-end computers anymore, and all you have to do is just buy a headset and that's it, yeah. this is going to make it much more accessible. Yeah. Let's talk about um, escape rooms quickly. Like you said, over the last three, four years, mm-hmm. they've, they have exploded. And it kind of takes a lot of... I think with um, the generation, I guess, people in their 30s and 40s, late 20s as well, it kind of takes them back to game shows that people were watching, like The Crystal Maze and stuff Oh, like yeah, that. Crystal Maze. Um, so so uh, there's lots of lots of shows like that so people can go and actually do something similar. But every mm-hmm. time I go and do an escape room, the next one's always more technologically advanced. They're Absolutely. always They're always moving. They're always getting much more exciting. Just when you think you've done the best escape room, you're mm-hmm. going to do another one and they've taken it to a whole nother level. Yep. What, what, why have they just exploded like this? And it's become like a... a, a they're, they're not cheap to do. True, they're not. They're good fun. They're, they're good fun. And I think that now you can use really cheap technology. So you can use a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino that don't cost a lot. We're talking about, what, 30, 40, 50 quid tops. And you can incorporate some electronics, some technology in your escape room to make it more immersive. And I think the reason why you've got these kind of more high-tech uh, escape rooms now is because of the of the cost. It's reducing the cost. The fact that you've got accessible technology is really cheap. That makes them uh, gives the escape room design more opportunities to become much more creative. And and also nowadays companies, I'm talking about you know big corporations, they want to uh, find some ways to motivate their employees. Mm-hmm. So or team building exercises. So instead of just going away for a day and do the old boring team building exercise, now you can take your employees in an escape room and let them play for an hour. That is much more, I think, um, that's much better than just putting them in a room and try to come up with, okay, here are spaghetti and try to make a, build a bridge with spaghetti. Yeah, it's great because it does, in a, in a sort of world where there's lots of pressures on work, um, family life and all the external things, it does sort of encourage, sort of brought back encouraging adult play yep. beyond, you know, exercise and stuff. This is just everyone going back to their childhood a little bit, isn't it? Sort of Absolutely. finding a sort of inner childhood in you. Mm-hmm. So they become very, very popular. So how do they work? Um, how do they, how can they work in teaching? So first of all, there are various ways to, ways to incorporate escape rooms. What I think is the best thing to do is, first of all, ask your students to build an escape room, an educational escape room themselves, because that makes them think. They have to be really, really creative to do that. And because they have, they're going to have a limited budget, they have to be really, really creative to see how they can uh, make something that is fun and uh, yet cheap. So you get your students to create an escape room first in a box because, you know, you cannot have, you know, the universe's space is always an issue. So all you need to do is make an escape room in a box, something that's really uh, portable. You can take the, put them in a room, hide, I don't know, whatever you're going to do with all the uh, the props and let them experience that. And then you can always take this at a different place and try that again. So there you ask students to collaborate to make an escape room. And that is that helps them uh, how many uh, soft skills. So it's teamwork. It's uh, being really creative. It's problem solving, uh, communication, all of those soft skills you get. Then you ask students to play an escape room, you know, try to solve those puzzles themselves. So first you involve them into making one, then you have them playing one, and then you have students actually observe others playing their own game because then they can see what worked, what didn't work Mm -hmm. when they were thinking of the puzzles and everything. So if you somehow find the time and the energy to make this happen, both making, 
playing and observing, I think they have a whole a holistic experience and you're, you're going to be in a much better place. Yeah, I mean, so clearly it's a different way of learning to what someone might traditionally think of learning. Yeah. Um, keeps it interesting for everyone. Like you said, the attention span is probably getting shorter and shorter. There must be quite a lot of interest from um, other subjects and, and schools. It works naturally with mm-hmm. what you teach. Yeah. But you way we've been talking about it would suggest you could put it in basically any setting. Absolutely. So for for the, for example, at the moment, I'm working on making an escape room about cybersecurity. So that is a, a project I'm working on and I got funding from the university as well. So I'm, I'm collaborating with some people and I uh, got some funding from Innovate UK as well. So I'm hopefully I'm going to have some kind of a prototype by the end of this year to test with, uh, with some staff and students. And I think that, you know, cybersecurity is something that's uh, even if you're a staff at the university, you have to do this kind of boring training, which most of the time is just watch videos, <laughs> click next, 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 and a multiple choice question, and that's it. Yeah, no comment. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's not what I would call really immersive or fun, right? Mm-hmm. If you can somehow make people learn about those things by participating in an escape room, that is going to be much more memorable, fun, and something that it's not going to sound like a chore anymore. So that's the, that's the thing behind this. Yeah. So how can we? Um, how can you collaborate more? And you know, in general, this is a this is mm-hmm. this could be a, a, a big thing across all schools. True. Well, first of all, uh, at the moment, I'm working at the School of Computing, Engineering, and Mathematics. So I'm collaborating with colleagues from our school to build an, uh, this escape room about cybersecurity. But the moment we kind of say that we've nailed that then we're going to reach out to other schools because the methodology is going to be the same. You're going to be using the same steps to create the educational escape room. The only thing that's going to change is the actual the, the puzzles based on the learning objectives. So if you know how you're going to build that and all you need is some subject matter expert to tell you exactly what it is that they want to teach, uh, what they want people to learn, and then you collaborate with those experts to come up with new puzzles. Mm. So the plan is at the moment to do this within our school and then reach, go to the Grand Parade. I know some people there and see if we can do something with, uh, with uh, people who do, uh, for example, I don't know, fashion or sound or art. Staying on that subject, as well as that using all these technologies as learning tools, there's also lots of expertise there through academics and students who all have these skills. Absolutely. And you've already collaborated with um, fashion students, haven't you? Yes, and that was actually a big success. Last year, uh, students from the game schools, undergraduate students, they collaborate with students who do fashion at the Grand Parade uh, to make a virtual reality catwalk show. So at the end of every year, uh, the School of uh, Dunham Grand Parade, they have this kind of catwalk show mm-hmm. and students have to uh, showcase their work. So we collaborated with uh, students from there and with a course leader, uh, Craig Higgins, nice bloke. And uh, our students made that VR experience, of course, with the help of our media team here, the technicians, they did a great job. Film, filming students do the catwalk and green, uh, green screen and all that. And our students took that VR fashion catwalk. Basically what it was is you put on your headset and you can see those models walking and you just uh, you have sound as well music playing and you just move your head and you can see them appearing from you know from up down whatever it was a really immersive experience and our students took that 
to the uh, Graduate Fashion Week in London. And from all the universities that were there, we're talking about all the universities in the UK, they go to London in June for the, the final year show, the catwalk. Uh, it was just us and the University of Portsmouth that had anything in, v in VR. Mm. And people actually noticed that. And our students actually, after that event, besides the fact that people talk about that on social media, on LinkedIn, and our students got uh, emails from people from other universities who asked them how they did that because they want to do something similar uh, for their own courses. Mm. I do find VR fascinating, really, because until you've tried it, you can't tell what it's like. And yep. then every time you try it, it will be different because there'll be a new technology mm -hmm. because you can't really demonstrate it by you can't demonstrate by putting a camera in and watching it on tv and seeing this was what it would look like because you haven't actually got the thing on your head yeah, it's a different it's a, experience it's a funny it's a funny thing like you know until you've tried it mm -hmm. it's really difficult to get your head around it isn't it yeah, but then absolutely. when people are trying it in successful situations like you just described then people are wowed by it so absolutely huge potential oh yeah and yeah. we also plan to use something like this uh your our open days mm -hmm. so that prospective students can experience that and see what our students build. It's not us lecturers who build that, it's the students' work. Mm. So if you, and these were second year students, not even, not even third years. So if you're a second year student, you can make something in VR that tells you that, you know, something about the quality of work that takes place at a, at a university. Yeah, I, so talking about the talent of your students, mm -hmm. and clearly there's gonna be very, very talented students and academics. There's obviously so many different way, avenues that people can go down once they've left university. Mm -hmm. Lots of different careers. Probably loads more now than there were, I don't yeah, know, decades. Two, three years ago. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Do you think as well that the perception of courses like yours has, has changed? Because I guess if I go back, I don't know, to when I was at university uh, 15 years ago or whatever, mm -hmm. if you take anything that's not, there's always that perception anyway that when you don't take a subject that's not an traditionally academic subject and here at the university we're very great on creative yeah um, and, and lots of other courses as well of course but there's always a bit sometimes there has been a bit of a sniffy view on those kind of things do you think that now because these skills are becoming so in demand mm -hmm. that the perception of these courses has completely changed yeah i want to i want to think so at least our numbers are increasing which is a good sign uh, because i i'll tell you something i mean <laughs> Five, four years ago, when I was still working in London, during the open days, we got students who were interested into games courses, but the parents were there and said, no, 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 you're not going to study that. You're just going to be, I don't know, a computer scientist or something that, uh, a lawyer, something that does pay the bill. Mm. I think that because of of uh, those uh, leaps in technology and the promotion of the marketing and all that, and people are now uh, can see the possibilities and they can now start to think that, well, actually, you're going to make money if you study this. You don't have to be just a lawyer or a dentist to make money. You can even be creative yet keep on making money. Mm. So I think that because of that kind of change of perception, students are now try, well, probably going to uh, decide that it's not a big gamble to study, I don't know, games, for example. Yeah, and without getting too political about it, mm -hmm. there's obviously been a lot of speculation about how much this was. Obviously, lots of discussions about course fees and the value of um, of, under, of undergraduate degrees compared oh, yeah. to more traditional ones. What you're describing and the skills that are going to be in demand going forward, it kind of dispels that myth, doesn't it? Everything, all these are these have huge value, no more or less than anything else. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important to be creative with what you do. It doesn't have to be just a dull and dry subject. You 
you need to give students the the, uh, the option. The uh, you have to allow them to be creative and collaborate because what students no what companies actually value more nowadays are those soft skills, mm. problem solving, creativity, collaboration, communication. So you have to somehow leave behind all of this traditional teaching mm. style if you want to if uh, if you want to say that and try to help students to be more creative and do what we call peer learning, learn from their peers. Yeah. Um, and then we're seeing some of the community benefits that, that these sort of technologies can bring as well. We are talking off air about a couple of different projects which have been going on in, in Brighton. Do you want to tell, tell, tell us about the um, couple of Games Jams, which right. uh, first of all, by explaining, I think, okay. what Games Jam is and then what you've been working on. Sure. So we've got a very active uh, student society called the Game Jam Society. So what they do is they organize or participate in game jams. So what is a game jam? Basically, is you've got a limited amount of time. Most of the time, it's about two days. Could be 24 hours, could be even more. But it's roughly, it's about two days. And the, you, they give you a brief. And you have those two days, one day, whatever, to make a game from scratch. So this is what a game jam is. Sleepless nights. You know, just pizza and and I don't know, coke or whatever, and uh, just making games from scratch, collaborating with others. So, uh, what our students did last year was um, in last February. You know, February is the LGBTQ History Month, and because Brighton's really famous for being such a diverse place, and uh, it's all about inclusivity, uh, we decided to organize what we call the Game Jam, G-A-Y-M Jam, which is going to be a game jam where students will have to uh, team up and make games, but the topic, the theme is going to be, was going to be uh, related to the LGBTQ uh, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a big success. Mm-hmm. We had about 40 students came here on a weekend to, uh, to make a game and uh, some really good games. And we got even sponsors, uh, we got sponsored, uh, we got a local game studios like Hunger 13 and Studio Gobo and Electric Square that they helped us financially. Uh, they provided the food. They sent their, uh, some of the team from the staff to act as mentors to our students. We got um, one of our research schools here, the uh, Center for Secure and uh, CS. IUS Center of Secure and Intelligent and Usable Systems. Uh, they also supported us, and of course we got support from our uh, from our school head of school. Uh, the vice chancellor actually uh, was at the uh, award ceremony at the end. And we, students, what is most important is that our students really love that, they really enjoyed that, and we got a buzz going on on social media on LinkedIn. I mean, posts made on LinkedIn where students actually uh, talk about how great that experience was. They had about four, five thousand views, okay. which is good. And because of that, we actually got Unity, Unity Technologies, which is one you know massive, big company, one of the leading companies in game engines. Uh, and they have an office uh, in Brighton. Mm. They reached out to our students, and they wanted our students to collaborate with them, so that they could organize their own game jam uh, during the Pride Festival uh, back in the summer. And now they're going to be on board with us because we plan to organize our new game jam again this February. And Unity wants to uh, help us out to participate. Yeah, awesome. Really cool. Um, and then um, there's been another one as well, which uh, may have a collaboration or something to do with International Women's Day. Yes. So we've got uh, 
really good friends in uh, Women in Games. Mm-hmm. This organization that supports and promotes women in games because you know it's mostly male dominated this uh, the gaming industry. But this is starting to change now. We've got people who work in this organization and they want they support us and we plan to organize another game jam. Uh, this time in collaboration with other universities, the University of East London and University of Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are going to host uh, this game jam, but this is uh, going to be themed after uh, women. It's, it's topic has to do with, uh, with women. I guess there's probably a preconception that, yep. that the games industry is probably dominated by, by men. Absolutely. And there needs to be a drive to get more women involved in gaming. Oh, yeah. Yes. So that is one way to do that. So we can show people that actually you don't have to be a white bloke yeah. to work in the gaming industry. No. Right. Yeah, cool. Um, really exciting projects coming up. Um, and uh, the work sounds great. Definitely seems like the right place to come to if you want to go and study these kind of things. So it sounds really exciting. I wish that I could have done something like that when I was a student because it sounds great fun. Uh, at the end of every podcast, we ask some um, questions away from work. They're really, really simple stuff. Uh, just uh, just try and get you to know you a little bit better, I guess, outside of work. So um, the first question would be, uh, what, what advice would you give to your younger self? So if you could transport yourself back a bit. Hmm, right. Okay, that's a tough one. Probably finish my PhD faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that took me a while. That's a common one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and do focus more on games because I wanted to do games back then, but it was not a big industry back in the day. In, in Greece, you couldn't do any of that. I'll just say, chase your dream. That's it. Yeah, and I guess, it, again, it's come back to that, the change of the way everything's looked at games. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more... I know, socially acceptable, I guess, to chase those kind of dreams. If you could pick a completely different subject to study at the University of Brighton that you know of, what would it be? Mm, fine art. Fine art. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? I always loved Seven Sisters. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Great for a walk. If you could give visitors to Brighton and the area a tip of what to do or experience if they're here just for a weekend, what would it be? Uh, go for a swim. In the sea, actually. Any time of year? Well, not really. But if they come <laughs> in the summer, they should just do that. Especially in the whole area because they were clean there. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely tell them to do that. Tell us something interesting about you that lots of people don't know. Uh, well, I probably already mentioned that. The uh, mashups that I make mm-hmm. and the uh, the DJing th- uh, gigs and all that. Just uh, It's really, I really enjoy selecting music for people as well uh-huh. so the uh, the music that uh, we used the uh, the catwalk show last year uh, i kind of curated the uh, the catwalk show with regards to music so it's just picking music and if you can think of any dj gigs in brighton yeah give me a, give me a call cool okay and i will pop your details in the podcast description so that people can just click through and listen to your mashups and your details as well in case they do need to hit you up for some uh, some gigs Um, and finally if you could pick three people to um, come if you're hosting a dinner party who would they be and why right well that would probably be Robert Smith Mm -hmm. the frontman of The Cure uh, Gary Newman and William Shatner okay because although somebody might say that they're not you know they're they're not that young anymore they still remain relevant and they always manage to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. and remain relevant. Yeah. Talking of um, William Shatner, and you've also already mentioned before as well that you're a Trekkie. Oh, yeah. So how excited are you? Or about, about Picard. About Picard. Are you excited? Are you not sure about it? Uh, a, bit, a bit nervous? Well, 
I have to be honest with you, I'm excited. I'm yeah. really looking forward because I've, I've seen Patrick Stewart uh, live and he's great. So I think that they, they should not, they're not going to mess this up. Great. Hopefully. Thank you to Panayotis. As I mentioned throughout the podcast, you'll find links to those mashups in the podcast description. Well worth a listen. If you want to find out more about our games courses and the projects coming up, visit brighton.ac.uk. And of course, keep an eye on our social channels. All of our podcasts are available on most podcast apps like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search the University of Brighton. You can listen to previous episodes there as well. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.